Good evening, this is Dr. Troy Shaw, Senior Pastor of the Liberty Hill Church. We're so glad that you're here to worship with us, and we hope that God will bless you as you've come to worship through study tonight. I want to take this time to thank our deacon, Deacon Kathy Palmer, for the very fine job that she has done with regards to Bible study over these last few weeks as we've delved into the book of Ezekiel. Tonight will be no different, and so we hope that you open your hearts and minds to the same. I want to take this time also to admonish you to stay vigilant and allow the Lord to continue to lead you and guide you as we are in this quarantine. It is very important that we remember that social distancing and face masks are essential to our health, and we certainly hope that you are practicing the same. Many of us who are in the at-risk category and I would consider simply being an African-American to be at risk in this country at this particular time. I would advise you and yours to stay safe and try to stay quarantined as much as possible. You will find that in the long run that it will be in our best interest to continue to social distance and to social distance and quarantine as much as possible. I think that this is the time for families to begin to make Thanksgiving plans. Many of the leading health experts are asking and hoping that we will keep our family gatherings small. One of the leading health officials in our country, as you know, Dr. Anthony Fauci, said that his family is not traveling this year. His boss, Dr. Collins, has said he has canceled Thanksgiving along with many celebrities and others. I would submit to you that you may consider the same This may be a good year for families to save money, as I know that this uh, crisis, this pandemic has cost many families many dollars. And I would encourage you not to let tradition push your budget. If this is a year that has been difficult for you financially, perhaps canceling Thanksgiving is a great uh, time for you to catch up. I want to also, as your pastor, remind you that Thanksgiving is not a biblical holiday. Every day ought to be a day of Thanksgiving toward our God, who has been so great to us. Uh, Thanksgiving is a man-made holiday that came about uh, through the uh, United States, but it is not a biblical holiday. So therefore, it is not one that we have any obligation to observe. And so I would admonish you to continue to move forward and allow the Lord to bless you. And if a turkey sandwich, a cold cut, and a bag of chips could save your budget for the year, then I would encourage you to do the same. And my prayers are with you. God bless you and keep you. And we hope as you study the Bible tonight that your hearts and minds continue to be open to the Lord's great way as we follow after the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. While we're together tonight, let us take the time just to uh, pray together. God, we thank Thee and we praise Thee for Thy great joy and peace for all that Thou hast done for us and Thy great Holy Spirit that continues to lead us by Your power gives us the wisdom to move forward after the way of Christ. Help us, Lord, that we might embrace Your way, that we might embrace the way of love that continues to move through our heart, our mind, and soul, that we might love You and that we might love each other. Continue, Lord, to give us the motivation to move forward after the way of Christ, to teach the world to love. But then, Lord, help us as we serve others as you have served us. We appreciate you for your great word, and we ask that you hope in our hearts and minds tonight that we might receive of your word and of you as we receive of the words that come from Ezekiel. Help us, Lord, that this prophecy might continue to open and enlighten even now, Lord, uh, the relevant times that we live in. Help us, Lord, that we might walk after your way, that the world might see you uplifted forevermore. We thank you. We praise you. We give you the victory in all things. 
the strength to carry on. Come, Lord Jesus, come. In the great, the wonderful power of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, I know you're in for another treat of the word. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Let us rejoice and exalt the Lord forever. God bless you. Welcome to Living the Bible Together. This is Dr. Troy Shaw, pastor of the Liberty Hill Church, internationally headquartered in Columbus, Ohio, located at 4410 Refugee Road. We worship here online Sundays at 11 a.m. We celebrate communion on the first Sunday of each month. Our Bible study is on Wednesdays at 7 o'clock p.m. For additional information, log on to livingthebibletogether.org. Join us here weekly as we're living the Bible together through education, missions, and ministry. Liberty Hill, living the Bible together through education, missions, and ministry. Welcome back to the study of the book of Ezekiel. This week we will cover chapters 20 and 21. Father God, in the name of Jesus, we offer you all honor and praise. We thank you for continuing to be with us. We thank you for our salvation through Jesus and for the Holy Spirit who brings wisdom and understanding. Please be with us now as we continue to study your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, chapter 20. We will see in this chapter that Ezekiel gives a panoramic view of the history of Israel. It's in two parts, her rebellious past in the first 31 verses, and then her glorious future in verses 32 through 44. The first part surveys all that the Lord has done for the nation and the nation's very inadequate response. So wicked had the Israelites become that God gave them over to their own evil practices in the hope that a sense of horror at their own deeds would shock them into repentance. We will see the mood of the chapter change dramatically at verse 33, where in a series of words, I will, the Lord promises that he, what he will accomplish on behalf of his people. All right, beginning at verse 1. And it came to pass in the seventh year, in the fifth month, the tenth day of the month, that certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me. We see from this that Ezekiel's prophesying has gone on for several years now. The elders had come to inquire of him how soon the siege on Judah and Jerusalem would be over and when they could go back to their homeland. It appears this is about the time that many of the false prophets were saying that the siege and captivity was going to be over very soon. And they want to hear the same thing from Ezekiel. Verses 2 through 4. Then came the word of the Lord saying unto me, saying, Son of man, speak unto the elders of Israel, and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Are ye come to inquire of me? As I live, saith the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. Wilt thou judge them, son of man? Wilt thou judge them? Cause them to know the abominations of their fathers. So God promptly answered 
through Ezekiel. He's angered with these uh, elders. He does not like them even inquiring of him. They had probably been listening to all of the prophets, both the false and true, and they had not been eager in the past to take instruction from God on their conduct. He will not help them figure out the time or the seasons. They've been a stiff-necked people, and God refuses to help them. Son of Man is speaking of Ezekiel. God tells Ezekiel to judge them. God wants Ezekiel to remember their sins and their father's sins that had gotten them in this place. Their sins had caused the captivity. God will not answer their inquiry. Verses 5 and 6. And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, In the day when I chose Israel, and lifted up my hand unto the seed of the house of Jacob, and made myself known unto them in the land of Egypt, when I lifted up mine hand unto them, saying, I am the Lord your God. In the day that I lifted up mine hand unto them, to bring them forth of the land of Egypt, into a land that I had espied for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. God reminds them of the bondage in Egypt of about 400 years. He had finally heard their prayers and brought them out of bondage with the ten plagues. This is the moment that Israel had become a nation. God took the twelve sons of Jacob and made the nation Israel. God reminds them here that the promised land was a land of milk and honey. It was a very desirable land. They did nothing to earn it. God gave it to them and to their families. 7 through 9. Then said I unto them, Cast ye away every man the abominations of his eyes, and defile not yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and would not hearken unto me. They did not every man cast away the abominations of their eyes, neither did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I will pour out my fury upon them to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I wrought for my name's sake that it should not be polluted before the heathen among, them, among whom they were, in whose sight I made myself known unto them in bringing them forth out of the land of Egypt. So God had promised them during their wilderness wanderings, if they would worship him alone and keep his commandments, the promised land would be theirs forever. They were not to be like other countries of the earth, worshiping false gods. They were to be a separate people who worshiped the one true God. They were to be an example for the rest of the world. They had been warned from the beginning that to worship idols would bring a curse upon them. They built a golden calf while Moses was up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, the very thing that they had been doing just prior to their capture by the Babylonians. They were making idols of silver and gold, which were abominations in the sight of God. God brought them out of Egypt for the world to know he is God. All the nations around were amazed at the ten plagues. Even the Egyptians believed that Almighty God was God after the plagues. They knew their idols had no such power. Many nations knew about the Red Sea parting and the death of the Egyptians in the Red Sea. Verses 10 and 11. Wherefore, I caused them to go forth out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. And I gave them my statutes and showed them my judgments, which if a man do, he shall even live in them. 
The wilderness wanderings should have taken just a, a short time. It was extended because God was trying to prepare his people. During their wanderings, he gave them his law. Their lack of faith had to be dealt with before he could allow them to take over the promised land. And verse 11 is speaking not only of the Ten Commandments, but of the ordinances that would help them live productive lives. They didn't have to have civil laws. They were covered in the ordinance that God had given them while they were in the wilderness. 12 and 13. Moreover, also, I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord that sanctify them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They walked not in my statutes, and they despised my judgments, which if a man do, he shall even live in them. And my Sabbaths they greatly polluted. Then I said I would pour out my fury upon them in the wilderness to consume them. The Sabbath was a special sign for them with God. This was a witness to them and the rest of the world of their special relationship. He would sanctify them, set them apart for his purpose. But they were a rebellious house. They didn't like the ordinances. They thought of the sacrifices as obligations and didn't want to do them for the love of God but only because of the obligation. Their hearts were far from God. They went through the motion of worship, but did not really love and reverence him. Verses 14 through 16. But I wrought for my name's sake that it should not be polluted before the heathen in whose sight I brought them out. Yet also I lifted up my hand unto them in the wilderness, that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands, because they despised my judgments, and walked not in my statutes, but polluted my Sabbaths, for their heart went after their idols." When Moses begged for their lives on the mountains, one of the reasons he gave God for not destroying them was that the heathen would see it. But God delayed their entering the promised land because of their unfaithfulness. Outwardly, they had given up their idols, but in their hearts, they were far away from God. As every little problem that arose, they would express desire to go back, wanted to go back to Egypt. The Sabbath was partially made for them to have a day of rest, but they didn't see that. They thought of God as a taskmaster. 17 and 18. Nevertheless, mine eyes spared them from destroying them. Neither did I make an end of them in the wilderness. But I said unto their children in the wilderness, Walk ye not in the statutes of your fathers, neither observe their judgments, nor defile yourself with their idols. God let them wander until the disobedient died off and gave the promised land to their children. God started with this group because they did not have the memories of Egypt. They learned the way of God in the wilderness and lived by his ordinances. Nine through twenty excuse me, nineteen through twenty-one. I am the Lord your God, walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them, and hallow my Sabbaths, and they shall be a sign between me and you, and ye may know that I am the Lord your God. Notwithstanding the children rebelled against me, they walked not in my statutes, neither kept my judgments to do them, which if a man do, he shall even live in them. They polluted my Sabbaths. Then I said, I would pour out my fury upon them to accomplish my anger against them in the wilderness. 
The best reason of all for keeping the statutes and judgments is right here. He is the Lord God. The Sabbath was a sign that set them aside as the people of God's law. It seems that each generation of these Israelites rebel against God and follow after the idols of Egypt. Some of this happens because they intermarried with the world. We can see also that their fathers had worshipped false gods in front of them, and they had picked up some of their father's ways. 22 through 24. Nevertheless, I withdrew mine hand and wrought for my name's sake, that it should not be polluted in the sight of the heathen, in whose sight I brought them forth. I lifted up mine hand unto them also in the wilderness, that I would scatter them among the heathen and disperse them through the countries, because they had not executed my judgments, but had despised my statutes and had polluted my Sabbaths, and their eyes were after their father's idols. God did not destroy them because they are an example to the heathen. In this instance, God saves them for the benefit of the heathen who've been watching. One of the punishments God does is to disperse them as he did these into Babylon and the countries around them. The sins from the beginning were the same as they were in Ezekiel's time. They were a rebellious house right from the beginning. They did not respect God or his Sabbath. The worst of all was their worship of idols. The very first commandment forbids the worship of false gods. 25 and 26. Wherefore, I gave them also statutes that were not good and judgments whereby they should not live. And I polluted them in their own gifts in that they caused to pass through the fire all that openeth the womb, that I might make them desolate to the end that I'm, they might know that I am the Lord. God allowed the Jews to live in sin. Like all human beings, the story of the Jews is one long history of rebellion. Ezekiel believed the law of God to be holy and just as it was. Because of their idolatry, they could not live under God's law. They had broken covenant with God when they went to the false gods, and the penalty for that is death. Verses 27 and 28. Therefore, son of man, speak unto the house of Israel and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Yet in this your fathers have blasphemed me, in that they have committed a trespass against me. For when I had brought them into the land for, for the which I lifted up mine hand to give it to them, then they saw every high hill and all the thick trees, and they offered there their sacrifices, and there they presented the provocation of their offering. There also they made their sweet safer and poured out their drink offerings." Ezekiel had been relating to the elders about the sins of the children of Israel from the very beginning. Now, this is directed not to the elders specifically, but to all of Israel. This is as if God is saying, in all these years, you have not changed. The fathers from the very beginning blasphemed God in their worship of false gods, and they're still doing the same thing. Even in the captivity in Babylon, these elders were seeking advice from false prophets while they also sought advice from Ezekiel. In the beautiful promised land that God had given them, they didn't rejoice in the beauty of the hills and the trees as being gifts from God. They began their false worship all over again. They worshipped false gods in the high places and under the thick trees. It seemed everything they saw caused them to seek 
to worship false gods. The sweet savor and the drink offerings were to be for God alone. To burn incense to a false god is blasphemy in the sight of God. 29 and 30. Then I said unto them, What is the high place whereunto ye go? And the name thereof is called Bama unto this day. Wherefore, say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, Are ye polluted after the manner of your fathers, and commit ye whoredom after their abominations? Bama is a shrine built on an elevated site. For Canaanites, the shrines were devoted to fertility deities, to the Baals, or to the Semitic goddesses called the Asheroth. The shrines often include an altar and a sacred object such as a stone pillar or a wooden pole. In high places during the time of the temple uh, were places where they met and worshipped false gods. This is saying that they had never changed. They're still involved with this same type of sensual worship that their fathers were involved in. It seems all of the chastisements God has sent sent upon them has not caused them to stop worshiping false gods. Verse 31. For when ye offer your gifts, when ye make your sons to pass through the fire, ye pollute yourself with all your idols even unto this day. And shall I be inquired of by you, O house of Israel? As I live, saith the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. It seems the worship of Melech was prominent on God's mind. This was the false god of child sacrifice. God removed himself from the temple and destroyed it. He also removed himself from the presence of these idolatrous people as well. God will not listen to them. He's turned his back to them. 32 through 34. And that which cometh into my mind shall not be at all that ye say, We will be as the heathens, as the families of the countries to serve wood and stone. As I live, saith the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out will I rule over you. And I will bring you out from the people, and I will gather you out of the countries wherein ye are scattered with a mighty hand, and with a stretched out arm, and with fury poured out. They had decided since they were in exile, and since the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, they'd just go ahead and worship false gods. They thought the law left when the temple was destroyed. What they did not realize was that to belong to God is a relationship not a religion. God wanted to rule them with his love. They were not faithful, so he will rule them with a rod of iron. In his fury, the stretched out arm shows God's judgment. 35 and 36. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the people, and there will I plead with you face to face. Like as I pleaded with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so will I plead with you, saith the Lord God. Other lands where the scattered people of Israel live are pictured as a wilderness in which the Jews will suffer. This is the same as God bringing his people from Egypt through the wilderness long ago before taking them into the promised land. The wilderness wanderings had been a series of problems. Every time they turned from God to false gods, the problems began. They would repent. God would start over with them again. It was a series of lessons to be learned. 
This will be no different. The hardships will be great enough to cause some to repent and seek God. 37 and 38. And I will cause you to pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. And I will purge out from among you the rebels and them that transgress against me. And I will bring them forth out of the country where they sojourn, and they shall not enter into the land of Israel, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. God used a shepherd figure here. God brings his sheep home to their fold, has them file in, separating sheep from goats, and passing under his shepherd's rod to be noted and checked for injury. The purging is a separation of the chaff from the wheat or a separation of the sheep from the goats. God's remnant will be made up of those who do not bow their knees to a false god. Only this pure remnant will go back into the promised land. God is the one who separates them. He judges what's in their hearts. Verse 39. As for you, O house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, Go ye, serve ye every one of his idols, and hereafter also. If ye will not hearken unto me, but pollute ye my holy name, no more with your gifts and with your idols. God is saying, decide who you're going to serve this day. If you're determined to worship idols and false gods, then go on and serve them. Don't come back to me. Don't pretend to worship me if you're worshiping false gods. God will only accept the worship of those who worship him alone. He will not be one of many gods. He is is the God Almighty. Verses 40 through 42. For in mine holy mountain, in the mountain of the height of Israel, saith the Lord God, there shall all the house of Israel, all of them in the land, serve me. There will I accept them, and there will I require their offerings and the first fruits of your oblations with all your holy things. I will accept you with your sweet savor when I bring you out from the people and gather you out of the countries wherein ye have been scattered, and I will be sanctified in you before the heathen. And ye shall know that I am the Lord when I shall bring you into the land of Israel, into the country for which I lifted up mine hand to give it to your fathers. In the Jerusalem that is restored, there will be no worship of false gods. The one true God will be worshipped. The temple will be restored. Their offerings and oblations will be acceptable unto him because they will worship him with all their hearts. The sweet savor in that day will not be from obligation, but because of love. They will love so much that it will be difficult to separate them from their offerings. God will bring them home to the promised land, from all the places they've been scattered. There there will be a sign to the heathen everywhere that they worship the one true God. This is a promise of the restoration of the promised land to them. Even more than that, it's a promise of God restoring a covenant relationship with them. He will be their God and they will be his people. 43 and 44. And there... And there shall ye remember your ways and all your doings wherein ye have been defiled. And ye shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for all your evils that you have committed. And ye shall know that I am the Lord when I have wrought with you in my, for my name's sake, not according to your wicked ways, nor according to your corrupt doings, O ye house of Israel, saith the Lord God. This speaks of a deeply repentant people for the sorrow they had caused by their worship of false gods. 
When they remember their sins, they will hate themselves for the sins. They will now know that he is the Lord. This restoration is not because they are worthy, but because he is worthy. God has forgiven them and restored them to fellowship with him. Every promise that God made to Abraham will be because of God's faith. God is truth. He said it. He will do it. 45 through 48. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face toward the south and drop thy word toward the south and prophesy against the forest of the south field. And say to the forest of the south, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will kindle a fire in thee, and it shall destroy every green tree in thee and every dry tree. The flaming flame shall not be quenched, and all faces from the south to the north shall be burned therein. And all flesh shall see that I, the Lord, have kindled it. It shall not be quenched. Preach against the south. The south is Palestine, particularly Judah. The army would swing west toward the Mediterranean Sea and then come south south out of the north to invade Judah. The invader, Nebuchadnezzar, will overwhelm the land as a sweeping fire, devouring trees indiscriminately, green or dry. I will kindle a fire. This parable of the forest is consumed by fire, metaphorically speaking, of fires of judgment sweeping through the land in the form of the Babylonian invaders, like a mighty forest fire which cannot be quenched. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, they say of me, doth he not speak parables? Ezekiel spoke truth that God put into his mouth. This verse demonstrates the elders' refusal to comprehend Ezekiel's clear message. To the unwilling heart, there is no understanding. That completes chapter 20, going on to chapter 21. And the point of this chapter is clearly that no matter how much the Babylonian king foolishly uses his false gods and even divination, the will of the one true God will be accomplished. Verses 1 through 3. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face toward Jerusalem, and drop thy word toward the holy places, and prophesy against the land of Israel. And say to the land of Israel, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I am against thee, and will draw forth my sword out of his sheath, and will cut off from thee the righteous and the wicked." The historical background for this prophecy is Nebuchadnezzar's 588 B.C. campaign to quell revolts in Judah as well as in Tyre and Ammon. The word came, this is the sign of the sword against Jerusalem. Since the people did not seem to understand the parable of the devouring fire, Ezekiel now explains the impending judgment in terms of a sword. In time of judgment and war, the just are sometimes cut off with the unjust. The sword being drawn out of its sheath shows just how quickly this might happen. The sword also shows the severity of the attack. We know that the conquest of Israel by Babylon was in several phases and took several years to finish. This is speaking of the final phase. 40, sorry, 21, 4, and 5. Seeing then that I will cut off from thee the righteous and the wicked... 
Therefore shall my sword go forth out of his sheath against all flesh from the south to the north, that all flesh may know that I, the Lord, have drawn forth my sword out of his sheath, and it shall not return any more. It may not seem fair for the righteous to suffer, but we are in the world together. Natural phenomena affect both, and so does war. In Babylon's indiscrimination as an invader, people in the army's path die, whether righteous or wicked. Trees green or dry may depict people, whether righteous or wicked. The reason that the sword will not be returned to the sheath is this is the final battle. There will be no questions of where this judgment came from because there had been so much prophecy given pertaining to it. Even Babylon is aware of the prophecies that have gone forth. 6 and 7. Sigh, therefore, thou son of man, with the breaking of thy loins, and with bitterness sigh before their eyes. And it shall be, when they say unto them, Wherefore sightest thou, that thou shalt answer? For the tidings, because it cometh, and every heart shall melt, and all hands shall be feeble, and every spirit shall faint, and all knees shall be weak as water. Behold, it cometh, and it shall be brought to pass, saith the Lord God. We see from this that Ezekiel is grieved and that his sigh is great. Imagine how very sad Ezekiel was to bring this terrible news to his countrymen. The bitterness of the eyes is speaking of the tears that flow when he's bringing this prophecy. Those around Ezekiel will probably not understand why he's in such pain. What they do not realize is that a prophet feels the pain of those he's prophesying against. Verses 8 through 11. Again the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus saith the Lord, Say, A sword, a sword is sharpened, and also furbished. It is sharpened to make a sore slaughter. It is furbished that it may glitter. Should we then make mirth? It contempteth the, the rod of my son as every tree. And he hath given it to be furbished, that it may be handled. This sword is sharpened, and it is furbished, to give it into the hand of the slayer. The sword is sharpened and ready to go. Furbished means polished. Soldiers many times polish their weapons just before a battle begins. This sword is in the hands of the enemy. We must remember, however, that God sent this sword in judgment. And contemptneth means to spurn. God's judgment was too strong for this object made or partly made of wood, as it holds in contempt all such items of wood. God is always the judge and executioner, no matter who or what he uses to fulfill his purpose. All right, 12 through 14. Cry and howl, son of man, for it shall be upon my people. It shall be upon all the princes of Israel. Terrors by reason of the sword shall be upon my people. Smite, therefore, upon thy thigh, because it is a trial. And what if the sword contemn even the rod? It shall be no more, saith the Lord God. Thou, therefore, son of man, prophesy, and smite thine hands together, and let the sword be doubled the third time the sword of the slain. It is the sword of the great men that are slain, which entereth into their privy chambers. It is Ezekiel who is to howl and cry. He could not possibly bring this type of message without it breaking his own heart. The smiting of the thigh is another sign of deep grief. 
Striking, I thought, one's thigh is an emphatic gesture of grief that the prophet is acting out. This accompanies further symbols of grief in his cry and howl, clapping of hands. It will appear that the rod of God has been overcome. That is not the truth, however. The attacking sword is from God as well as the rod. This is a chastisement from God upon his people to change their ways. Those of wealth had private places, but even if they hide in these places, they will be found and run through with the sword. They cannot hide from God. 15 through 17. I have set the point of the sword against all their gates, that that their heart may faint and their ruins be multiplied. Ah, it is made bright. It is wrapped up for the slaughter. Go thee one way or other either on the right hand or on the left, whithersoever thy face is set. I will also smite, my hand, smite mine hands together, and I will cause my fury to rest. I, the Lord, have said it. Those in Jerusalem thought that their walls and their strong gates would save them. God knows the weak points in the gates. The gates will fall and the walls with them. The people will faint in their hearts when they see there is no hope. The sword is wrapped up until battle. Whichever way the soldiers went, there was destruction by the sword. It wouldn't matter whether they were on the right or left, the destruction was coming. It appears that the clapping of God's hand, the fury would stop. 18 through 20. The word of the Lord came unto me again, saying, Also thou son of man, appoint thee two ways that the sword of the king of Babylon may come, Both twain shall come forth out of one land, and choose thou a place, choose it at the head of the way to the city. Appoint a way that the sword may come to Rabbath of the Ammonites, and to Judah in Jerusalem the defensed. So this begins a new part of the prophecy, and this imagery sees Babylon's army on the march coming to a crossroads. One leads to Jerusalem, and the other to Rabbath, the capital of Ammon. The sword is the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, who's faced with a decision, either to Jerusalem and Judah or to Rabbath. At this point in the road, the invader could choose one way or the other. In 593 BC, Ammon had conspired with Judah against Babylon. The king had decided which place to attack, so he didn't didn't know he had to decide, so he sought his gods through divination. The Babylonians practiced divination, and they used three distinct ways for trying to determine the will of their gods. Casting arrows, which was much like our drawing straws. Consulting images, either directly or as mediums to departed spirits. And hepatoscopy, or the examination of the liver. In hepatoscopy, a sacrificial animal was slain, is liver Its liver was examined, and the particular shape and configuration was compared with a catalog of symptoms and predictions. Verse 21. For the king of Babylon stood at the parting of the way. At the head of the two ways, to use divination, he made his arrows bright. He consulted with images. He looked in the river. The head of the two ways means to go either to Jerusalem and Judah or Rabbath. All of the things mentioned in verse 21 are things connected with the occult. This king of Babylon was not a godly man. He took his directions from witchcraft. 
So this, there are three methods available. He, can, he shook the arrows and let them fall and then read a conclusion from the pattern. Or he can look up at the idols or he could examine an animal liver. Yeah. Actually, the true God controlled this superstition to achieve God's own will, which was the attack on Jerusalem. And we will see it again in verses 28 through 32 that Nebuchadnezzar attacked Raboth in Ammon, east of the Jordan. So 22 through 23. At his right hand was the divination for Jerusalem to appoint captains, to open the mouth in the slaughter, to lift up the voice with shouting, to appoint battering rams against the gates, to cast them out, and to build a fort. And it shall be unto them as a false divination in their sight, to them that have sworn oaths. But he will call to remembrance the iniquity that they may be taken. When the quiver was shaken, the arrow that was for Jerusalem came forth. And the rest is telling that they battered the gates down. When the people in Jerusalem heard of the divination that went on at the separation of the roads, they still didn't believe that the Babylonians would be able to take Jerusalem. They did not want to believe that the protection of God had been removed from his holy city. They were wrong. Verse 24. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, because ye have made your iniquity to be remembered, in that your transgressions are discovered, so that in all your doings your sins do appear, because I say that ye are come to remembrance, ye shall be taken with the hand. We see again here why God is letting this happen. They have sinned by worshiping other gods, and God has not forgotten it. He is totally aware of the sins they thought they had hidden. God reminds them here of the curses that would come upon them if they sinned in this manner. They were so used to God's protection that they could not believe he would allow them to be destroyed. But it is actually the hand of God that is against them. 25 through 27. And thou profane, wicked prince of Israel, whose day is come when iniquity shall have an end. Thus saith the Lord God, remove the diadem and take off the crown. This shall not be the same. Exalt him that is low and abase him that is high. I will overturn, overturn, overturn it, and it shall be no more until he come whose right it is, and I will give it to him. The prince will be punished along with the people. No longer will Zedekiah reign. He's toppled. The diadem is not only a crown for a king, but many times speaks of the mitre of the high priest. It appears from this that the high priest is punished the same as Zedekiah. The threefold statement to overturn or overthrow expresses the severest degree of unsettled and chaotic conditions. Israel was to experience severe instability, and even the kingly privilege will not be Israel's again until the Messiah comes, to whom it rightly belongs. 28 through 30. And thou, son of man, prophesy and say, Thus saith the Lord God concerning the Ammonites and concerning their reproach. Even say thou, The sword, the sword is drawn, for the slaughter it is furbished to consume because of the glittering. Whilst they see vanity unto thee, whilst they divine a lie unto thee, to bring thee upon the necks of them that are slain of the wicked, whose day is come, when their iniquity shall have an end. Shall I cause it to return into his sheath? I will judge thee in the place where thou wast created in the land of thy nativity. 
in the separation of the roads where the king of Babylon practiced divination, the Ammonites thought they were safe. Now we see that God will deal with them also. They will be killed by the sword, the same as those in Jerusalem. It appears from this scripture that the Ammonites trusted the divination as well as Nebuchadnezzar. They had put their faith in a false god. They rejoiced at the destruction of Jerusalem, and God will now destroy them. Their iniquity had not been overlooked by God. The Ammonites were natives of this land. They were nomads who were descended from Lot's youngest daughter. For the Ammonites to resist Babylon would be useless, for they would be slaughtered in their own land. 31 through 32. And I will pour out my indignation upon thee, and I will blow against thee in the fire of my wrath, and deliver thee unto the hand of brutish men, and skillful to destroy. Thou shalt be for fuel to the fire, thy blood shall be in the midst of thy land, there shalt be no more, thou shalt be no more remembered, for I the Lord have spoken it. It would not help them at all to fight against these Babylonians because it's actually God who has sent the Babylonians. The blowing just makes the fire burn more brightly. They are evil and God will use an evil king to destroy them. This is the final end of the Ammonites. They will not be restored as Jerusalem will be. Their destruction is final. They will not only be destroyed but forgotten as well. They will never be rebuilt. And this ends chapter 21. Thank you so much for spending time with me in Ezekiel. I pray that you will have a good week, and I will talk with you next week. God bless you. This has been another broadcast of Living the Bible Together with Dr. Troy Shaw from the Liberty Hill Church, where we worship virtually on Sundays at 11 a.m. For more information or to contribute to this ministry, please visit us online at livingthebibletogether.org. God bless you and have a great week. Liberty Hill, living the Bible together through education, missions, and ministry.